Hello and welcome back to The Garden Podcast. This series goes behind the scenes at the RHS Magazine headquarters here in Peterborough to bring you the stories behind the stories that are creating a buzz in the gardening world. Today it's jingle all the way as the team puts the finishing touches to our December issue, obviously with the obligatory Robin feature in it, and we focus on plants with a Christmas flavour. Garden and plantsman legend Roy Lancaster discusses his passion and respect for conifers. Cedars, redwoods, pines, ginkgos, larches, they can transform any space. And there really is one to suit any garden, small or large. Plus, a flower that for many plant lovers is a real star of the Christmas seasons, hippiastrums. We examine the best of this beautiful bunch with my colleagues from RHS Garden Wisley and discuss how to get the best blooms from your bulbs year after year. I'm Chris Young, the editor of The Garden magazine, and our December issue is as packed as ever, we hope, with a range of interesting articles for people. There's a couple of real highlights for me. One of them is the news piece, and news often doesn't get a big billing with us in the garden, but actually there's a piece that our news editor, Anissa Gress, has written about, which really uncovers what makes a British plant. And there's a whole debate about this, Would you go into a garden centre or a nursery, and actually there's a label that might say British grown, but actually what does that mean? Because we are uncovering slowly in the horticultural world that actually plant growing is a global trade and that plants that might be labelled British grown might have only been grown here for six, eight, ten weeks but they might have started somewhere in another part of the world, might be from South America, they might grow on in Africa, they might come through into Europe and then eventually come into the UK. So it's something that we really think our readers and our members really want to know about and uh, it's fascinating for us because we're learning as well as we're uncovering this. So it's a really useful news piece about what makes a British plant. There's three great gardens this month. One garden in Somerset, one in South Africa and one in Barbados. So it just shows that partner gardens, which are a range of 200 gardens that RHS members can get in free at selected times through the year, can go to a partner garden, whether they're in the UK or on holiday further afield. So there's some three really different gardens, but they're really beautiful ones. One of our USPs that we're really proud of in the magazine is our plates, our plant plates, our photography, where you see our different selections of a plant all put together in one photograph. And this month we've chosen brassica. And before people switch off or yawn, there is such a range of plants that come out of the brassica family. I will let people read for themselves in the magazine all about it. But it's beautiful photography and uh, really explains the diversity in brassicas and actually what they means for people who want to uh, grow and cook their own. The final highlight for me has got to be the debate that we've got at the back of the magazine and it's on the topic which might be slightly surprising of those Christmas slightly gaudy sometimes naff plants that you see that might be sprinkled with glitter or injected with dye to bring some sort of seasonality and festivity to them. Deputy editor Phil Clayton and well-known garden writer Anne Swithenbank have opposing sides and opposing opinions about the novelty plants really that we call them and in fact the debate continues even in the office we are still discussing it and we're still trying to work out who is for and against these sort of plants and I also know that people on our lovely social media feeds have plenty of opinion too. I'm Phil Clayton I'm the uh, deputy editor of the Garden magazine 
And I'm Melissa Mabbitt. I am a writer here on The Garden magazine. So you may have noticed in the shops these novelty plants starting to appear. Christmas is the prime time for their arrival. When I say novelty plants, I'm talking about painted or glittered succulents, braid heathers, orchids with puce blue flowers, all these remarkable looking creations that you see on the shelves in garden centres, but it's often in supermarkets, isn't it? I think the big um, one at the moment is, I think echeveries that have been completely dipped in white paint and then splattered all over with little splashes of paint, so very colourful. So we ran a little article about these in the Garden magazine in December. It was a debate between myself and Anne Swithenbank. It's already sparked off quite a few interesting mm. comments. So what we do is we tend to put out teasers for the contents of the garden every month on social media and when we did it this month we included this debate as part of our tease for the garden and it did spark off quite a lot of discussion mostly very angry people or people who actually were really almost quite affronted by it really should we say insulted almost i think by Mm -hmm. these things definitely a crime against horticulture i'm reading here not for me almost as bad as artificial grass you can't improve on nature i hate to see them Plants and flowers bring their own beauty. They don't need enhancement. Mm. There's one here. It says, it breaks my heart every time I see plants dyed or sprinkled with glitter or decorated with googly eyes. And I think it's interesting because that is the initial reaction that many people who love plants would have to... to... It's horror, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is initi- horror. Yeah. Gilding mm. the lily. Yeah. <laughs> in the worst Why is it necessary? Way. Why is it necessary? That's initially what my reaction, when I first started seeing them, I just thought, this plant is going to die. What a waste. It's the waste of it. And Well, that's the first interesting point, mm. isn't it, really? Do they die? Does it finish them off after they flower? From what I understand, no, it doesn't. Mm. Uh, last year, when we took the photographs of the sprayed succulents, we've kept the plants and all of them are still alive. They're not perhaps the best grade A specimens, but they're all growing away quite happily now. I was amazed to find that out. I was, I, I genuinely thought that would be a death sentence for the plant. But as you're saying, they're actually just normally just food dyes that kind of wash off relatively quickly and they don't do any harm to the plant. And things like echeveras are really tough plants and they can just grow away from the paint. Seems, it seems like that. Mm. The blue orchid that we photographed is not flowering, but it's perfectly healthy. Mm. There's a slight blue tinge to the leaves, <laughs> uh, but it's alive. So I don't think it does necessarily kill them. And even if it did kill them, does that matter? Are these not just another crop like mm. carrots or yeah. cauliflowers Bedding that you plants. would kill? Bedding yeah. plants. Mm-hmm. It, is it really any different? That's the thing. And like when you really think about it, you think, well, there's never any furore about Christmas trees. I mean, the amount <laughs> of time, energy that's gone into growing a Christmas tree, cut it down, stick it in your house, and then it mostly gets binned. So can you really complain about echeveras or some sprayed heathers going in the bin afterwards? I think horticulture as an industry, there is a lot of wastage, and that is just part of the economics of the industry. And you, you may or may not disagree with that. But if you buy a poinsettia for your house at Christmas, then you can't really criticise people who are buying a sprayed area. Isn't it very similar? Well, it's a, it is. And obviously the inputs for the coin cities are quite high, the heating and the light mm. required to bring them and to colour at the right time. It's all down to taste. I can understand people's initial revulsion really at it because it is also it's quite a new thing I think most people would look at sprayed heather and be like oh well I don't like that but ho-hum but they've been around a long time the sprayed cacti echeveras are quite a new thing and I think it's treading on people's toes because it's new and a little bit seems a bit extra wrong maybe but you know people will get used to them if and and some people are buying them because they continue to sell them somebody's buying them but anyway whether you like your plants glittered painted or au naturel grow as many as you can 
Mm. And Christmas is a great time to bring them in the house. And I would just say, actually, if you do see one and you really love it, don't feel really bad. If you're going to have a natural Christmas tree in a poinsettia, you don't need to feel really bad about having a painted, some other kind of painted plant. <laughs> don't feel guilty. <laughs> In this month's magazine, I'm delighted to have an extensive article by plantsman Roy Lancaster on conifers and some of the very best to grow in the garden. Roy's articles and photographs are a tree lover's dreams, and he certainly has some surprising and inspiring suggestions. I called to ask him what had first piqued his interest in conifers. Roy, in this issue, you've given us your personal choice of conifers. What do you love about conifers so much? There are all kinds of things, a variety of shapes, sizes textures of the foliage, colours of the foliage, of course, and barks. A lot of conifers have very exciting different kinds of barks, flaky barks, furrowed barks. On the subject of conifer foliage, aromas. And many conifers could have a very special scents, very aromatic, like thuya, the red cedar of Western North America, or thuya plicata. You only have to sort of brush by that and get this lovely smell of uh, pineapple, which doesn't go away on drying. Another thing I've often noticed when flying into various airports, not just in this country, or even my local airport, Southampton, looking down, whatever time of the year, but especially in winter, you see the number of conifers that are growing in gardens or in plantations, and those in gardens, the variety you get there. It really warms the cockles of my heart to think that people are still growing conifers, despite in the past there being fashionable comings and goings, as we all know about. Conifers, it's an old family of plants, after all, and they're real survivors, and so they certainly survive as gardeners' plants and as gardeners' favourites. So, Roy, take me back. When was the first recollection of noticing conifers for you? Was it as a young man or when you were starting your career? that I was interested in wild plants and even before then I was a very keen bird watcher as when I was a boy in my early teens I was aware of a yew tree growing in a, a churchyard not far away and you might think there's nothing special about that a lot of yews in churchyards and especially in Britain I remember one thing about it, it was the fruit the red fruit and I remember finding its name and details about it in a little book we had at school and he told me that those berries were poisonous. So that's probably the first conifer. I was also aware, traveling all around Bolton in North Lancashire, very often, some of the conifer plantations. These were places where they had foreign conifers, usually spruce. And I remember also, in a large garden, not far from where I lived, someone had planted a Christmas tree. And it was big enough to be corning. And I've never forgotten that, that tall column with these arching branches, layer upon layer of evergreen leaves, scale-like leaves, and these uh, old clusters of these cigar-shaped cones from a coffee brown, and they were tinted with the resin that was leaking from the cone scales, which hardens on exposure to the air and turns sort of a silvery. And it reminded me of a real a Christmas tree. And I now have, in fact, it's in my neighbor's garden, a huge... Christmas tree, which, according to my neighbour, they moved in this property one year before we moved in ours. That was in 1982. This Christmas tree was already there, a small tree. Somebody had probably planted it out, having used it uh, indoors for Christmas. And it's now maybe reaching 70 feet. 
and it's full of these wonderful cones right now. And, of course, it's a great home for all kinds of birds, especially wretched magpies and squirrels, <laughs> the bed of my life. Roy, for the article, I mean, how have you defined conifers? What, what do we actually mean when we use this term? I've really addressed those plants, generally known as conifers, that's the general term for them. That comes from the fruit of the conifer, corn, coniferous or cone-bearing trees, and some of them are shrubby, some are dwarf and some are among the tallest trees on the planet. And basically, they all produce a cone. There are some variations. The cones, though they look enclosed, they're made of scales, and the seeds of the cones are placed at the bottom of the scale. So they're open to the air. They aren't totally covered with something. And then if you think of other types of conifers, the yew, for instance, that's included generally amongst the coniferous trees, in that though it produces a fruit which looks like a berry, a nice red coat, as it were, but placed in the centre and with its nose popping out, you see the sea, which is green. And then you get junipers. We don't refer to juniper cones, but juniper berries. They, too, produce, it looks like a berry, it's a succulent, but produces seeds which are exposed at the tips. Roy, you've probably one of the best-travelled uh, plants people I know of. Just give me a couple of examples of where a conifer has really caught your eye in a garden or a park or somewhere around the world. In the northern island of Honshu in Japan, in the mountains, I get these wonderful forests. They're mixed, broad-leaved and evergreen forests. And I remember one day, wonderful day, up early breakfast, out to get in the mountains driving slowly up this winding road and going through the different layers of forest. And then we came to a space and looked across a valley at a whole face, the whole side of a mountain that we were heading for, which covered in this forest, and this would be in October. It was like looking at the most brilliant patchwork quilt you ever did see or could ever think of making. Reds, orange, gold, but... Amongst them were areas, sometimes in patches, sometimes individual, of darker stains. When we reached those trees and we were able to examine them, they proved to be two different species of fir, abies, A-B-I-E-S. And to see these firs growing in this mass, this wonderful mountainside full of these gorgeous colouring maples, really was a heart-stopper. If we're looking to the future, Roy, about welcoming more conifers into our gardens, how do you feel about that? Is there a place in the future in our gardens for conifers? I'd say definitely yes. No question. Apart from the fact that they add variety to our tree flora and to our woody plant flora and landscapes, conifers have been around a hell of a long time. And I think we owe them respect and that we should make sure that continues. And that would apply to all trees. And but going back to conifers, I'm sitting in my little office here now in Chandler's Ford near Southampton. I'm looking beyond my garden and I'm looking across the road into the gardens of neighbours. And I can see a whole collection of Scots pines. That's about five gardens away from where I'm sitting. I can see the red upper stems, which I find very attractive, and I can see the blue-green needles, and I know too, and this is comforting, that in some of those crowns, there's a rookery there. And I'm always aware of the rooks coming and going during the breeding season. 
And so this conifer that provides not just pleasure for us as gardeners, but certainly the home for birds and other animals. And so I think it's really on a practical question that where you have space, then uh, think about trees that will match that. And dwarf conifers, if you only have a small patch or you only have a balcony, there's almost nowhere that cannot accommodate a dwarf or a slow-growing conifer. Nothing to fear in planting one of these slow-growing ones because slow is the word. And should you stay long enough in your garden, you can always pass that on as a wonderful present to a neighbor or to a friend if it becomes bigger than you particularly want. But I think we should, in parks and gardens and the bigger places, we should be planting big conifers as well as deciduous trees. For those people who never go and see the wild places of the world, or even in your own country, in the new forests, or up in Yorkshire or Scotland, if you have somewhere a big tree that you can look at, that to you reminds you of the wilder places Big trees speak of wild places, of big mountains, of big continents, of places where you have adventures. And let's not forget climbing trees. And many of these trees, conifers especially, provide fantastic places for young people, youngsters, as we did, to climb. I'm sure, Chris, if you've ever been to the top of a tree, you can look down, everyone passing below looks like an ant, king of your street. Roy Lancaster. You can read Roy's selection of conifers, complete with compelling photographs, in the December edition of The Garden magazine. This magazine is just one of the many benefits of RHS membership. If you haven't already, why not join today? A membership also makes a perfect Christmas gift. For more information, visit our website, rhs.org.uk. There are more and more hippiastrums available to people, and anyone going in a garden centre will see a wide range of them. So we thought it was a really good time to put these plants on trial, to see the very best, the ones that could be awarded the Award of Garden Merit, and also to give some best advice on how to keep them. The article this month is really trying to help people select the best hippiastrums that are available. It's showing the best plants, why they got the Award of Garden Merit, how to look after them, and if you're really looking for some choice plants, which one to go for. One of the questions many members ask is how to look after hippiastrums and get them reflowering year after year. I spoke to Karen Robert from the trials team to hear her expert advice. Karen, you've written this article all about these beautiful South African bulbs, hippiastrums. Why did the RHS want to do this trial? Hippiastrums are, I think, experiencing a bit of a resurgence in recent years. We haven't done a trial for a long time. I'm not actually sure that we've ever done a proper trial. So with the new introductions coming in from the Netherlands, South Africa, USA, Australia, Japan, we thought it was high time to do a trial and actually showcase these bulbs and try and show how you can get these to reflower, not just for Christmas, you know, a lot of people buy them for Christmas, but actually how you can get these to keep going over several years. It's always fascinates me about the RHS plant trials because we, do, we undertake about a 30 a year, don't we? How do you actually bring all the material together? Where does it all come from? So how the trial works is we have a forum of assessors. So we have 10 people that we invite onto the trials who are experts, basically, to give us their assessment and guidance on the trial. So we had a couple of breeders as well and retailers in the trial. So some of our plants came via their connections, their network of people. 
and some of the plants came in the trough from actually me just looking through online catalogues and seeing what was out there and available because ultimately you can only give an award for garden merit if that bulb is actually available for everybody to buy. And so how many plants were actually in the trial? So we had just under 70 entries and we had three bulbs of each entry. So we had a pretty amazing display actually when you, for our visitors because when they were all out in flower all at once, it was quite spectacular. And we held the trial in the glasshouse corridor. So people coming to visit whilst the plants were in flower were sort of in for a treat really. And it was a really popular thing. We had a lot of visitors and at the end of the trial we did have a, a sort of open day, a sort of celebration of hippiastrum, if you like. And that was really popular. We had some guest speakers. We had a mass of bulbs in flower in the glasshouse at Wisley. And we had some demonstrations as well. As you say, these are really bright, you know, spectacular plants. Anyone who's ever seen them or grown them around Christmas time know they're on these big, showy heads of flowers on these tall, mid-green stems. So having more than 200 of them in the glasshouse at Wisley must have been a huge sight, a, a, a brilliant range of colour. It was, and you know, it's really nice because when not a lot else is out, and it's just a really jazzy, exuberant sort of celebration, really, of colour. And, I, yeah, I think that's why it was really popular. We had a lot of visitors that day. Many people who know hippiastrums will know that actually getting them to grow and flower in that first year is actually pretty easy because they come in a box and there's some clear instructions about how to plant them and water them. But I guess the question for all of us, and, and I don't know if you found this or the trial members, is how easy is it to get them to reflower? When you buy them pre-prepared in a box, they've already had a period of semi-dormancy or dormancy, which is what they need really to reflower. So as soon as you pop that bulb up, it's going to start going into flower mode. Once that's happened, it's quite easy to get that to reflower again, but you just need to continue it growing through the summer months. Even though the flat, you've cut the flower stems down, you want to keep that plant watered and, and fed so that it's replenishing its food reserves in the bulb itself and also initiating new flowering shoots. But in the wild, where they come from in South America, they have a stress period, which is a couple of months where it's cool and very dry, and that's what will initiate flowering. So you need to replicate that. So at the end of the summer, when you've continued to keep your bulb growing and it's got lots of leaves, you need to give it that semi-dormancy period to sort of rest it, and that will initiate that when you start bringing it back into warmth and watering it again, feeding it again, it's going to go and send up these flowering spikes. You explain this really well in the article, actually, don't you, Karen, all about the um, issue of reflowering. So really it's as simple as we grow them for winter, we cut the flower stem off after Christmas, we keep feeding and watering them until September, and then, as you say, push them into this period of dormancy for a couple of months, and then you bring them back out of that sort of October-November time to get them to flower again for Christmas. And I would say that... When you're buying your bulb, if you have the chance to actually buy a bulb loose, it's really a good idea to buy the biggest bulb you can because those bigger bulbs are going to probably throw out maybe three or four flowering spikes. So as one comes up, it will flower, and then as the flowers die, you cut that spike. You keep going with watering and feeding, and you'll see that more flowering spikes are coming up. So you, you could end up with a, a quite a long flowering period you know if you've got a bulb that's big enough and mature enough so I would always recommend that you actually try and find the biggest bulb that you can.
Before we let you go, Karen, I really want to know from you a couple of your favourites. I think in the article, you know, there's some beautiful photography of these different plants, and especially the newer introductions of these cybista types, which are a bit more spidery and a bit thinner flowers. Have you got any particular favourites from the trial? Yeah, I actually hadn't seen those cybista types before the trial, so that was new to me, and they were great, and I have a favourite, actually. It's called merengue. It's one of those spidery types, and it looks so contemporary. It's a really unusual burnt orange-brown colour, and I thought that was great. And I also really liked Picati, which is one of the old favourites, actually. It's mm-hmm. the original one with the Picati, which is a red margin, a very fine red margin around the petal edge, and that was just beautiful. You can read the profile of the AGM Hippiastrums in December's edition of The Garden magazine. Well, that's almost all we've got time for. We'll be back with another issue of The Garden Podcast next month when we're looking ahead to the first issue of 2019 already. There's plenty of content in it, as ever, from the winter walk at Wisley to a select group of ferns and also an article by James Alexander Sinclair about why plants are so very important to the RHS. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and all the team here at Peterborough, goodbye. Goodbye.